All right, friends, Greg Kokel here. Show is Stan DeReason. And uh, my conversation with uh, the fine Mr. Cade last uh, show, which was a couple days ago for you, is a couple minutes ago for me. I kind of blurted out a title right there at the end. It's probably in the show notes for that show, but I just wanted to say it more slowly because this author is somebody to keep in mind. Um, his name is Thaddeus Williams. And he's from uh, from Biola University. Has written a number of good books. Uh, one of them, a couple of years ago, confronting injustice without something or other about the Bible. Um, Amy, it's a it's a it's a really good treatment of uh, critical race theory and the like. Very accessible and uh, just really great, Thaddeus Williams. But this other book is titled "Rethinking Free Will and the Problem of Evil." Rethinking Free Will and the Problem of Evil. And I think he develops the idea, according to Amy. I haven't read it. Uh, I need to get it and take a look at it when, <laughs> when I get around to it, as they say, uh, when I get some free time, which will won't be for a while. But in any event, um, I think that he, um, he affirms the point that I make that that love is not something that you choose. And so you can genuinely love God, because God has made you love Him. He's worked in your heart and wooed you in an effective way so that you have genuine love for Him, even though you're not quote-unquote freely choosing, like you could have done otherwise. And that's usually the requirement for uh, for freedom, the CDO requirement, according to philosophers. Um, and the fact is, most you think of the people that your heart loves, and none of them are people that you chose to love from your heart. Your children, your spouse, whatever. No, you choose to act loving to them when you're not feeling loving. That's true, but that's a different kind of thing. Okay, so just saying. Thaddeus Williams. Um, oh, there's, okay, Rethinking Free Will and the Problem of Evil. Amy put the other one up, too. Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth. Twelve Questions Christians Should Ask about social justice. So <clears throat> Thaddeus Williams and uh, a couple of titles that will uh, be very helpful to you on the topic that um, Mr. Cade and I were discussing and also an ongoing cultural issue, um, critical race theory and <clears throat> racial justice and all that stuff. Okay, uh, let's see. What else? Oh, uh, before I go to your calls, which I will in just a moment, just a uh, reminder that we have two STR University courses that are recently up. One is mine called Relativism, Feet Firmly Planted in Midair, same as the title of the book. Um, cover the same ground, but that was 25 years ago with Frank Beckwith, and I've kind of added some new things. And uh, so I, if you want to understand what relativism is, take the course. Okay, STRU. There's also a course, I think, uh, let's see. Where's my note here? Uh, oh, yeah. Okay. John Noyes has a course up on Jesus, the only way, only one way. So those are available. Uh, I will be speaking uh, at Beach City's Church. Oh, see, I waited to the wrong hour. Saturday, August 12th. Okay, so this is Friday, August 11th for you guys, right? Yeah. Okay. I'll be there Saturday, the evening service. Talking about relativism, actually, 
and then Sunday, the morning services. And this is a unique situation. I wish more churches would do this, though, not just for, for, with me, but just in general. And I think uh, Tim Keller used to do it a lot. And that is, after the Saturday night service, I'll have a half-hour Q&A with the audience. And after the second service on Sunday morning, August 13th, I will have another half-hour Q&A. This is Beach Cities Church in Huntington Beach, California. And uh, if you want the detail on that, if you just go to str.org slash events, you can find out where all of us are at. I will also be uh, Sunday, August 13th. I'm sorry, make that uh, August 20th, the week following, uh, at uh, South Valley Community Church in Gilroy. I think this is the 25th year that I have been with this church in August. We keep Every year they do an apologetics conference, so they ask me to come again. I'll be talking about the Trinity, a solution, not a problem. And uh, let's see, what else? Okay, just a reminder, too, that on August 19, that's the end of the early word price for Washington reality. 49 bucks. You sign up by, I think, before August 19. So I should be saying August 18 is the last day, as I understand it. RealityApologetics.com. Remember I said a couple days ago we have over 900 already signed up for Southern California in uh, September at, uh, let's see, 22nd and 23rd. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And that's going to be at Biola University this time. Washington is October 13 and 14, Minneapolis, November 10th and 11. All of the information is there at realityapologetics.com. Okay, to your calls here. And uh, this is Kevin in Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Kev. Did I do something wrong? Kevin, are you there? I'm on there. Yes, I'm here. Oh, okay. There we go. So, nice to talk to you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Yeah. No, I can't hear you. Yes, I can. I'm right. just joking. <laughs> I know. I do the same thing. Really <laughs> All right. What's up? So, um, I'm, I've engaged a skeptic, very skeptic, um, a gentleman who claims that the portions, portions were written in the Gospels to um, fakely fulfill prophecies written in Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, 5. Or Isaiah 53. Okay. How would I go about proving with an authoritative uh-huh. sources that are biased that that is just not true? Well, here the difficulty here, though, is he is making a, a rather aggressive claim about the reliability of the accounts in the Gospels that were written 2,000 years ago, okay? So he is saying that that the authors somehow— um, corrupted the the writing. That, that's not the right word. They somehow um, um, so they conspired it. or whatever yeah. to to make the accounts of the crucifixion of Christ, Psalm twenty two, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ, Isaiah fifty three, to somehow make it look like it was being fulfilled. In the time of Christ, okay. Now, I'm not even. I I'd want to know precisely what he thinks that looks like, all right? Because Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are part of the Hebrew Scriptures, and of of which we know predate the time of Christ because we have copies, physical copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls that predate the time of Christ. So there there could be no 
question historically that these documents actually predate the time of Christ. Okay, first step. All right. We also know that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. And, I mean, this is every scholar in the field that discusses this. And I, I, I do, let me think, which book do I, in the story of reality, I footnote Gary Habermas's extensive work on uh, the, these four facts that are related to making the case for the resurrection. And the first one is that Jesus died on a Roman cross. He was dead. Nobody disputes that in the field. I've never heard anyone dispute that. Even Bart yeah, Ehrman. Yeah, I agree. He, he notes this guy named Jim Carrier. Have you ever heard of him? Yes, he's an atheist. Yeah, he he's taking all his... Well, look, at all you guy. have to do is just, if you survey the academic field, you get a, a, a chorus of voices that, for good reason, affirm that Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross. Now, uh, this is important because, and I do footnote this in Street Smarts in the chapter on the Bible, um, I have a clip of Bart Ehrman. Do you know who Bart Ehrman is? Oh, yeah. Aggressive critic of Christianity and mm -hmm. of the text of the Bible. And he is yeah. fielding questions after a lecture, and someone says to Bart Ehrman, I don't see any historical evidence that Jesus ever existed. And Bart Ehrman gets really frustrated with him. And he said, well, I do. He almost interrupts him. I do. I wrote a whole book about it. Now, he doesn't believe, obviously, particular claims that make Jesus into God, or the miracle claims or whatever. But, but he, the Jesus, and he says, the reason, the reason I believe this, and also the reason you will not find a scholar in the field of ancient Near Eastern history or biblical theology, anybody who studied, you won't find one in the world, is what he says, who believes what you just said. And the reason is, is because we have multiple independent sources that are early that give us strong testimony to the life of Jesus. Now, what sources are, are he, are he talking? What sources are he talking about? Did I get that right? Yeah. That sounds weird. Okay, well, whatever you know what I'm talking about. Okay, what, 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 what? <laughs> Amy's laughing at me. I don't even know how to say it right. What? How do I? Say? So, which quickly, which source? Well, the source of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is what he's referring to, and others, and others. Okay, so, um, so the point is, and I'm just going to Psalm 22. We know Psalm 22 was written 800 years before Jesus, and crucifixion wasn't a form of punishment then. Certainly not among the Jews. And then we know that Jesus was crucified. So how how does that get invented by somebody trying to match him up? The crucifixion of Jesus is historical fact. The psalm was written long before. They match up. How how does anybody um I think the I think this person does not know or believe that you can determine which documents, like Isaiah, how do we determine that it's actually 800 years older than the Gospels? All it's it not has radio dating or anything, is well, it? Well, I don't know about Isaiah. I was talking about Psalm 22, about 800 years, but I mean, too, actually even yeah. more. But the, it doesn't matter. If it's eight days before, it, become, it is a reference to something that took place. It's a reference to something that the psalmist is talking about that actually takes place 
in the experience of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Yeah. Are you with me? I heard yeah. a little funny noise there. Okay, so that the, the dating of it is not significant. What's important is that this was part of the corpus of the Old Testament Scripture that predated the time of Christ. That's all that matters. And so when we see this description that predates the time of Christ, that looks just like a crucifixion, and particular things happen there, then when we see the account of the crucifixion, we can see the matchup. Now, what we don't, what we can't, in a sense, test independently, is that that his garments were divided up, okay, and they cast lots for them. Now, that's in the, the, the account of the Passion, and that's also a detail in the psalm. So why would somebody think they're making that up? I guess they could have. Well, they made that part up. They didn't make the crucifixion, they pierced my hands on my feet and all of that stuff. Well, maybe they maybe made the other. Well, then why would you think that? You've got to have a reason for that. You can't just say, it's possible, therefore that's what happened. These men so wrote an account at, at by the way, at a time that was at great risk for themselves to hold these views. The disciples. Yeah. They had nothing to right. gain from it. Why would they be lying about that? So I think the burden of proof is on him, not on you, with regard to Psalm 22. Go yeah. ahead. You are going to say something. I was going to say, what methods do they use in the laboratory when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, to determine they were actually so many years old? Is it scientifically? Do they sample the paper? And well, say, oh, no, yeah, they, they, so. what they yeah. do, the way they... Uh, uh, they may have done that with some of the paper, okay, but usually the way they did it, and I have actually been in situ at the place where uh, this kind of thing was taking place, they actually look at the the way the handwriting um, was done. What do they call that? There's a, maybe Amy can think of it. Paleography or something like that, yeah. They're looking at the, the handwriting, the, the, the way the letters are made. It looks like you have lots of different fonts you know, that you can choose in your computer. They're looking at the, the writing, and uh, they, they, that's one of the ways they date it. They can find, they get, there are certain ranges of that. So there's, there's probably inter, a number of different things that are going on. But again, all that matters is that Isaiah 53 existed before the time of Jesus in Psalm 22. And so here's the next thing about this. So, and I, don't, I don't know what he's going to say about Psalm 22, and the the argument I just gave, why would you think that they made up these little things? You gotta have a reason for that. You gotta say that the, the people who gave otherwise reliable information about the historical details oh, such that uh, yeah. what happened? He says just they could just so the church would have control over people. It's a really you know I don't know how how fruitful this is gonna be to win this guy to Christ, but well, I, I'm also doing this to educate myself. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, the answer to the first question is, I don't know either, and we can't control that. But what we can offer is what is reasonable. A lot of times people, like Carrier, you know, these guys aren't reasonable, it seems to me. There are yeah, arguments. No, and so, right. and yeah. you, see, you see this, um, how, how, do I, how do I know you're an atheist? You can say that to your friend. Well, because I, I believe, so. yeah, you might be just saying that in order to get more people on your whatever and blah, blah, blah. See, it, any, every single thing that happens, one can offer a skeptical response to. It doesn't mean that the skeptical response is reasonable, 
okay. So, mm-hmm. um, so that, Psalm 22, that's my response to that. You know, take it or leave it for him, whatever. Isaiah 53, though, is interesting, because Isaiah 53, is, it's, not ref, it's not reflecting uh, an historical event in the same way Psalm 22 is. You see these details that look like crucifixion and events happening at the foot of the cross. What, what Isaiah 53 is talking about is the theological significance of the event. Okay, that's completely theological. So I, I, I don't know, on what basis does is he making this complaint? You know, yeah. I'm going to Isaiah, uh, let's see, Isaiah 53 right now, because I want to read some of the words. <clears throat> and what, I, what, the, what, the, what Isaiah is saying there is this person who's suffering, is suffering badly. His form is so marred you can hardly recognize him. Why is he suffering? He's suffering for the sins of my people, to whom the stroke is due. And there's, there's, there's lashing, uh, whipping that's kind of pictured in that account. But the significance of that account is the theological interpretation of the crucifixion. So what does he want to be? Does he want to be did the early Christians make that up? No, the verse is there. You look at the, the fact of the crucifixion, and then you understand it in light of Isaiah 53, which was written before the crucifixion. Yeah. So that's an interpretive issue. That isn't a making up the story. By the way, this, you understand my point, right? Yeah, and he's also saying that the apostles never existed and that they never died. Okay, well, so I'm just yeah, chasing and, all this and stuff the, down. Yes, you know? and the earth is flat and the earth, and is the center of the solar system and blah, 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 blah. Like I said, people can say whatever they want. What you have to do is to give a reasonable account for the existence of these documents, okay? And one of the the scholars who do this stuff for a living and have no theological axe to grind on our side and may have one to, to grind on the other side, which is Bart Ehrman, who's an atheist or at best an agnostic, they don't hold this view. They don't hold anything like this. In fact, Bart Ehrman told the guy in the, in the video thing, he said, quit talking like that. You just sound foolish. Don't right. make it, you know, you're not helping us at all by saying things. And so that's kind of the way the skeptic is, too, I'd say. Yeah. Well, thank you, Greg. I'm a strategic partner. Love oh, supporting good. you. Good. Thank you and so a, much, uh, Kev. Outpost person, outpost director. Oh, so. my goodness. Are you coming out then for the outpost meeting uh, in a couple of weeks? I can't. Oh. I was just out there for the CIA. I can't. It's oh, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Oh, so I'm. I must have met you then at CIA. Yeah, I Albuquerque. met you in the lobby. Remember, I had the, 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 the I'm a tall guy, red shirt, outpost director T-shirt. I met you in the lobby. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember that conversation, but I can't picture your face, Kevin. So my apologies. Yeah. Well, that's a my good apologies thing. on that. But uh, whenever anybody says, "Do you remember?" You know, I think no, that's that's a dead end, right? <laughs> yeah. All Thanks right. Well, lot, I'm, I'm glad to have met you there at CIA, and I'm glad you're an outpost leader. And I think you you have insight when you say, maybe there's nothing here that's going to make a difference with this skeptic. The way he's arguing, that's the way it seems to me, at least at this point in his life, all right? There are lots of stories of people that, I want to say, thought just like he did, but it's it's not very reasonable, discursive thinking, what he's offering you, but nevertheless ended up changing their mind as the Holy Spirit did what he did his work, and they realized these 
you know, there are better reasons for believing uh, the record than there are for denying the record. So um, if you want to stay and play with him, fine, but, you know, you know, it's up to you. Keep praying for All right, him. Thanks, Greg. All right, Kevin. Appreci- right, bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Appreciate that call. Let's go to break, and then more of your calls after we come back. Do you have a passion to train people in apologetics, but you don't know where to start? You may be interested in starting an STR Outpost. STR Outposts are local communities of Christians seeking answers to the hard questions about Christianity. Each outpost is led by a qualified director who trains others with STR content and curriculum in their local church. By becoming an outpost director, you will be equipped with the content and coaching you need to lead your own outpost. We currently have more than 60 outposts across the country, and we're adding more each month. If you're interested in learning more about starting an outpost, or you want to find a current outpost in your area, visit str.org outposts. You can also email me, Robbie Lashua, at outposts at str.org. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Well, I, I finally found the passage in Isaiah 53, um, and we were talking about it speaking generally, but I, I want to read this passage to you because, um, uh, for one, it's a magnificent passage. It's a theological um, explanation of why the servant of Isaiah 53 suffered. And by the way, it's clear when I read this that the servant is not Israel. There are other times in Isaiah where Israel is is identified as the servant, but it's clear in the words here that the servant is suffering for Israel when Israel was the guilty one. Remember, this is Isaiah, and he's speaking to God's people here. And uh, so let me just read this for you, and uh, it, 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 because it also makes a powerful case for something else that is uh, being being um, challenged 
by Christians, and that is the substitutionary atonement. That is, Jesus died as a substitute for us, being punished so that we could be forgiven. And here's the way it starts from the top of the chapter, New American Standard. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Now remember, when you hear these first these personal pronouns, these plurals, uh, the prophet is talking about the Jews. We, the Jews. Verse 4, surely our griefs, remember he is acquainted with grief, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like sheep that is silent before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and interceded for the transgressors. That is Isaiah 53. And having read it, the whole thing just now, I realized there were actually some particular details that were features of Jesus' own historical circumstances, not all theological, but it is mostly. The fact that he was buried in a rich man's tomb, he was crucified with the transgressors, etc., etc., the fact that he didn't open his mouth, he gave no defense for himself, etc. Those are the kinds of things that actually fit into the historical account. But the massive portion of this, as you can see, was a statement of the theological significance of the death of 
of this one, this servant, and the death was a substitutionary death on behalf of those who were actually guilty. Isaiah 53. All right, let's go to Ohio and uh, Mr. Joey. Hello, Joey. Hi there, Greg. How are you? Good. I just read Isaiah 53. I think that's pretty cool. I'm yeah. feeling good. Yeah, I heard you talking earlier um, with the other guy who's about my age as well. Oh, really? Um, about hell and everything. Cade. Yeah. Yeah, so you are, you're yeah. 16 or so? I'm actually 15. Oh. I'm turning 16 here in a few months. But... Oh, okay. Well, yeah, you, you, yeah. Uh, it's obvious you comport yourself very well. Thank you. So what's on your so, mind? Yeah, so I have a question about um, sort of, I was thinking about it, and I was like, it's not necessarily hell, but it's sort of the pathway to it. So I was listening okay. to Frank Turek and Michael Jones from Inspiring Philosophy, and they both seem to imply, or at least they quote, and they seem to uh, imply that they kind of hold the view of, like, <clears throat> excuse me, the gates of hell are locked on the inside. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Something about that seems kind of contrary to the normal way of looking at hell, sort of like, um, like I was actually watching Tim Barnett <laughs> from the Red Pen Logic, and uh, I thought he, I thought he said it pretty well, sort of the traditional way of defining. He said, "God does send people to hell, but it's because of the sins that people choose to commit." That's In right. other words, we choose sin, not hell. But when we choose sin, we get hell because hell is a just punishment for sin. Do you hold that view? Do you know what C.S. Lewis is trying to say there? Um, well. Uh, there's a lot going on there. You mentioned Frank, and Frank and I have some differences on on this issue. I'm Reformed, and he's not, um, Frank mm-hmm. Turek. But um, <clears throat> I, I never was comfortable with the phrase that hell's doors are locked on the inside. That means that the people suffering in hell are responsible for keeping themselves there, so to speak. Right. It's not an outside yeah. lock, it's an inside lock. Now, this is that Lewis's phrase locked on the inside? Yeah, he said um this was from the CS Lewis Institute. He said I willingly um he wrote I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Yeah, that's Lewis, right? Yeah. Okay, right. yeah. See, I I just I you know, you don't want to cross swords with Lewis, you know, without thinking yeah. carefully about it. But I, I think in uh-huh. this particular case, there's an imprecision there that's misleading. All right. Now, I think uh-huh. <clears throat> it would be fair to say. So let me go after Lewis because he's dead and he can't fight back. If I go after Turk, then you know he can go after me. So okay, let's just right. deal with Lewis. Uh, <laughs> um, the there's an imprecision there, and the imprecision is that, or let me put the 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 the, the 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 thing about it that is somewhat accurate is that people that are in hell are in hell because of choices they make. They are ultimately responsible for being there. So think of a you know a criminal that's just been sentenced to um, you know life imprisonment, and the criminal says it's not my fault, man. I'm not the one who gave the sentence. You gave the sentence. It's your fault. Well, that's pretty weird, right? It's not yeah. the 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 the, uh, the prison doors are not locked from the inside; they're locked from the outside by the by the by the judge and jury, who det- and the government who determined this guy's bad. What he did is bad, and he's going to be punished for it in this cell for the rest of his life. 
Okay. Yeah. So right. that that aspect of it is is I mean one aspect is correct that it's because of their choices, but it is a judicial act of God that makes this happen. It isn't like if they just changed their mind they could unlock the door since the lock's on the inside. Right. And, yeah. And, and here I think it gives God the short God's justice the short shrift. Okay, um, and I mean, I'm looking here at uh, Revelation 21, and uh, or make it Re- Revelation 20, the judgment in in starting in verse 11, and it says there, I saw the dead and the great, uh, the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened. Notice it's books and a book, books and a book is where John characterizes it which is the book of life. So the individual book is the book of life. The books, they aren't given a name, but I call them the books of death, in contrast with the book of life, because of the consequence of what's in those books. It said the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. That seems pretty clear to me that this is a rap sheet. This is a record of all the crimes that people have committed against God, okay? And the record of the crimes shows that they are guilty. And then it says that uh, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So he's tossed in there. He doesn't go there of his own will. It is God's act of judgment based on the deeds that were evil that they did that resulted in their sentence of eternal torment. So this is so you can see. Well, there's something kind of true there, but ultimately, I think it's misleading. It's almost like washing God's hands of the process when, in fact, God is acting in a just fashion regarding the sin and rebellion of humankind. Okay. So yeah. I think it is the last judgment is more like they're put in a prison. If you follow the analog from our own justice system, right? Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. I was because I, I think I understand what where C.S. Lewis is coming with that because it it does seem to be like you know the whole thing about putting the um, the blame on ourselves, like we ultimately choose yeah. uh, whether we go to hell or not, but it's not. I was thinking about it. I was like, I don't know. It's, I don't feel like it's not so much of us literally walking into the jail cell, but it's more of like, we did an evil deed. And in fact, I think that's, um, he was, Tim uh, was responding to a girl on TikTok who made that. She was like, well, she said, are you, do you choose to go to hell? And then um, she, and she like replied to herself pretending to be someone else. And yeah. she was like, well, yes, you choose to go to hell. And she said, oh, okay, then, um, like, I'll do bad actions or whatever, and I can go there. And she's like, well, that's not how it works. So she says, oh, so I'm being forced. Not necessarily you choose the sin that gets you to hell, right? Is yeah. that what you're trying to get at? Well, it's, yeah, it's, like, okay. it's, it's like saying, look, you brought this on yourself. You didn't choose the consequence, but you chose the actions that led to the consequence. So you are right. responsible for the consequence. You brought this on yourself, is the point. And I think that's kind of Lewis's point, too. Now, there was nothing amiss in this regard with Lewis's theology. That's not what I'm suggesting. But uh, sometimes when people with good theology 
put things a particular way. They turn a phrase, God loves the sinner, but not the, he loves the sinner, but not the sin, for example. I call that a pastorism, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, people don't care how much you love. They, they, they don't care about what you, how does that go? No, they don't care what you um, think unless they, they know how much you care, or however that goes. I'll have to think about it. Th- these are things about um, that, that maybe have a truth to them, but if you take them too far, they can be misleading. And so I think that there isn't, turns out to be a kind of imprecision the way people sometimes think of the the way Lewis put it. So, um, so um, th- that's what I think is going on here. It's just, if we were really being precise, they're not locked from the inside. They're locked on the outside by God who threw people into that prison for punishment forever, and then he throws, throws the key away after he locks it. But they are in there because of what they did. They brought this on themselves. Right. Yeah, this was um, a discussion that I was actually having with some of my other apologist friends, um, and they were talking about annihilationism and uh, universalism and everything else. And one of the guys brought up a point. Um, He said, using the word eternal to describe our existence after death is something of a semantic shortcut. The eternal spiritual world exists outside of time, meaning that it exists outside of a temporal sequence of changing factors. The entities of the spiritual world, like angels, do not change because there's no time, and time only exists when there is change. Because of this, I think it follows that our choice to accept or reject God in the sense that we choose heaven or choose hell is one that occurs in a state where change does not occur. Therefore, we make one choice of heaven or hell, and our choice affects us for eternity. Okay. um, I think that's confused. All right. Um, okay. He is correct in he is correct in saying our choice affects us for eternity. He is also correct in saying if there is no change, then there is no time passing. Okay, time passing or change is a sufficient condition to indicate that time has passed. But he makes the mistake of thinking that the change is only something that happens on the inside when change can be happening on the outside. I could still be myself without changing, and I can count to ten. And if I'm counting to ten, then time is passing. Or if I could be doing nothing but just a statue that's not changing in any way, shape, or form, and cars are driving past the statue, then time is passing, because there are changes that's taking place on the outside, outside of the statue, not on the inside. So I think, you know, it was a little bit hard to follow all of the details, but I heard those couple de- couple particulars, and that, you know, alerted me, like, well, this he's not— He's got to do some more thinking about the nature of time and change, <clears throat> at least with re, with regards to even God, but certainly with regards to us. So I don't know how that all cashes out in terms of his understanding of hell and eternity, but, uh, you know, we don't actually ever live in eternity. We just live forever and ever. We will always have an age. Right. We, we just keep getting older. I don't know if that's discouraging for some people, but we we don't go from time to eternity. Now, if we do pass out of time, that means nothing happens after that. And this is where your friend has a good insight. If we go into so-called eternity, and what that means is a timeless state, then nothing is happening. And uh, we might be in this, like, fixed gaze on God, the, uh, what do they call it, the... um, Thank you, Amy. He's whispering in my ear, so to speak, on the other side of the window. <clears throat> the the beatific vision. It's just like, oh, and nothing happens. That's not the way heaven is like. 
because we know there's activity in heaven. We even see descriptions of activity in heaven in the book of Revelation. Things are happening. And if things are happening, and there's a new heavens and new earth, and we're doing things, and we're judging angels, and we're worshiping God, and whatever we're doing, then we're doing stuff. And if we're doing stuff, right. then time is happening. And so we keep getting older and older and older and older, but we never live an eternal amount of time. Only God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. We are always and forever will be temporal. Gotcha. All righty. Nice talking to you, Joey. Nice talking to you. Thank you very okay. much. Take care, buddy. All right. Thank you, too. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go to break, and then we have uh, Tim from uh, Abbotsford, B.C. Which Tim is that? Is he the Tim I know or the other Tim that calls on occasion? Okay, we'll find out. When we return on Stand to Reason. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Allen, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org. Then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. Do you want to become a more knowledgeable Christian ambassador without sitting through a formal course on apologetics? Well, we've made that possible for you through our STR Quick Reference app. Available for free on iTunes and Google Play, the STR Quick Reference app holds a wealth of information summarizing what you need to know on a range of topics. Learn how to defend the faith, see how other worldviews compare to Christianity, and master the biblical view of morality all through short, engaging videos. Before you know it, you'll be well-versed on a number of important apologetics topics. In addition, the Quick Reference app also includes a Bible with text and audio, as well as some featured STR resources, all to enhance your learning experience. The STR Quick Reference app will equip you to engage in thoughtful conversation about the key issues of life from a classical Christian perspective. Visit iTunes or the Google Play Store today and download the STR Quick Reference app. And if you enjoy the app, make sure you give it a five-star review. Uh, don't forget uh, this month, be one of the 100. Uh, if you would like to become a strategic partner, and one of our earlier callers was one, and many callers call in and they say, hey, by the way, I'm a strategic partner, and you might be thinking, <clears throat> oh, what's that? Well, that's uh, our cadre of uh, our financial team that lays that really represents the foundation financially for us at Stand to Reason, those who have committed to give monthly on a regular basis. And there's lots of advantages to declare yourself as a um, strategic partner and and make that commitment as an ongoing thing. But this month, we're inviting uh, you to be one of the 100. That's our goal for the month. We're actually, believe it or not, at 53. 
It was 51 this morning, and now it's 53 in the afternoon. <clears throat> Actually, that number was Tuesday's number. You're listening on Friday or later, so that number may go up. And, and it's, so people have been responding, and we're, we're really thrilled to see that. It really strengthens our enterprise. If you found Stand a Reason to be a consistent help to you, would you consider being a consistent partner with us? And if you pledge $30 or more, and that would be in celebration of STR's 30th year of ministry, uh, we will send you a signed copy of Street Smarts using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. That's uh, my latest work that will be released on the 12th of September. And of course, that's when we will send it out to you. If you sign up now or in the rest of the month, it's a project for the month of August. We've been doing the last couple of years, and so I encourage you to consider that. Just simply go to str.org and forward slash partner and follow the prompts. All right. All right, Tim's turn. Tim in uh, <clears throat> Abbotsford, British Columbia. Okay, so it's not the other Tim, it's this Tim. You're, I, I know a Tim over by where Tim Barnett lives, and uh, that's, mm-hmm. you know, in Ontario. So you are in B.C. Good mm-hmm. for you. Where's Abbotsford? Is that in the mountains somewhere? Or? That's like an hour away from Vancouver. It's a, say again? An hour outside of Vancouver. An hour outside of Vancouver. Yeah. Which is the place where, when I was in Vancouver teaching once, the people said, we don't tan, we rust. <laughs> Sound right? Oh, well, I don't know about them. I, I sure can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And just yeah. south of the border there, in, in northern Seattle area, is a place called Everett, Washington, which I call Everwet for the same mm. reason. Okay. All right, so, Tim. What's on your mind? By the way, can I say thing? By the way, I'm a strategic partner. <laughs> oh, fantastic! Oh, glad to hear that. That's I was that's great. If I if I if I cancel my um, subscription <laughs> and, and uh, restart, if I could become one of the one hundred, uh, that well, um, send just send Ocean an email about that. Okay, <laughs> she'll work something out for you. Joking, but I, I thank you for being a strategic partner. Yeah, that's great. My pleasure. But um, yeah, my my question was um, how important the Bible should be to a Bible-believing Christian, you know, as in um, reading it a lot, reading it every day, and keeping it close to us, and and cherishing it, how important it should be. Like, my, I ask that because my wife, it's mostly, she's a Christian, but she doesn't, as far as I know, read the Bible. Mm. Like, I, and I was wondering what questions I could ask her the right questions I could ask to get across her, it, it is very important to keep it close to us. Well, yeah, this is, I, this is uh, an important question, just in mm-hmm. general, and obviously important to you, because you understand mm-hmm. the significance of it, but you have, you're married to a woman who is a Christian, but, you know, doesn't, the, the, the change hasn't fallen into the meter so much. Yeah. And it's a little difficult because the Bible covers lots of different stuff that may not be that relevant, okay, to her right now, or she may not see it, or it may be relevant later, but not, whatever. So, yeah. okay. Now, I, you know that I'm in the habit of reading through the Bible. 
I read on a regular basis, and I read through the whole thing, and I keep track of it with a little chart that I check the boxes for the chapters, and I don't always read it in order. I don't read the appropriate amount every day, but I keep moving through the Bible, and when I'm done finally reading the whole thing, I just file that paper, and I print out another checkbox check box thing for my—and I start all over again. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, I— I started doing this because of something that J. Warner Wallace said. Okay, you know who Jim Wallace is, Cold yeah. Case Christianity, etc. Yeah. All right. And what J- Jim had challenged at one of our reality events, he challenged the young people to read the Bible. And he said, when I—and uh, this is the background. This isn't a question yet to ask your wife, but I'm just kind of fleshing this out a little bit. Maybe something mm-hmm. will suggest itself. He said, when I have to solve a cold case, when I have a, a murder that's been cold for decades, maybe, and he wants to take a hand at trying to find the bad guy, he pulls all of the documents out, and he reads all of the documents. These are the documents pertaining to the case he's trying to solve. Now, he makes a point that some of the stuff he reads is really boring. <laughs> he also makes the point that some of the stuff he reads, he doesn't seem to apply to the case. He also reads them in, in, uh, in his case, he reads them in, um, in, in order, in temporal order, the oldest first up to the more recent. So he gets, and, and, and he recommends that people read the Bible the same. He says, I, I don't know how to solve this case, but I'm not going to solve it unless I get all the facts. And sometimes getting all the facts means tedium, reading things that you don't think apply that may turn out to apply at a different time. It may fit into the larger puzzle of solving the murder um, in a way that you don't expect when you first read it. But you at least you're packing all that information in. He's getting the big picture and he's getting all the details. He's getting the big picture and all the details, and this puts him in a position to be able, the best position, to solve the crime. Okay, so that's his point. That's his his um, analog, whatever, analogy. And he says, that's why, you young people, you should read the Bible. You should read the entire Bible. There's stuff in it that'll be boring to you. There's stuff in it you won't understand. Doesn't matter. Just keep reading it. And the reason is, it's the whole story, with all the important details embedded in there, that God has given us to understand reality. Uh, I'm going to be in an interview in a couple of days, I think, about the Bible. And mm-hmm. they want to, they're asking the same question that you're asking, rhetorically, for the content of the interview. Um, it's not the interviewee, he knows, but he wants me to talk about the reason. And and one of the questions is, <clears throat> what is the Bible? And what I thought of is, the answer is that the Bible is an account of all the important things of reality written or given to us by the most reliable source. <laughs> mm. I never really put it that way before until I started thinking about a way to put it that doesn't sound trite. Oh, it's God's Word. Well, it is that, but you hear that so many times it loses its significance to the person who's listening. It is an account of the most important things about life from 
the a completely utterly reliable source that is the author of everything god himself okay so w- the reason jim wants the young people to read the bible is the same reason i say i read the whole thing over time and then i start again because it tells me what reality is like it reminds me of what's true about the world because i'm getting discipled from every single angle okay and whatever magazine i look at whatever commercial i watch whatever billboard i drive by whatever movie i see they are all telling me about the way they think life is and what's important and much of it is not true and i have to be constantly reminded about what is actually true and right and good in order to order to counteract the impact of the discipleship coming from the world. So, does that make sense to you so far? So far, yeah. I I knew that already. Right. (laughs) Okay, so now the question is, how can we put it in a way that would maybe be compelling to your wife? Does she have any hobbies or things that she really loves doing? She's a teacher, so... Pardon me? She's she's a teacher, so she's pretty busy. (laughs) Oh, well, wait a minute. Well, that's perfect. She's a teacher. Yeah. How, how 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 does a person? What's her field? What's her topics? K kindergarten grade one. Okay, so great. they're very basic things that she has to teach in kindergarten grade one. But they're not just content information, but there there are things that have to do with human development that is apropos to those ages of development, right? That are unique yeah. to those ages. So has she been trained to deal with uh, any of those things? She have a teacher's credential, or would she get a degree? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. She has her master's well, too. So, so maybe this is what you can work with as an analogy. Honey, you're a teacher. That's important, right? Absolutely. Is it important that you understand certain things to be able to guide and direct your these students the best? Yeah, of course. So you have to be a student of those things in order to be able to be a, a good teacher to them. Yeah, of course. Okay. Life is no different. Life writ large. What is important? What is? What are the important things to know, given the big picture, from beginning to end? Not just what's important for a, a you know, a class project or a, a um, what, what do they call those? You know, they put together their 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 teaching um, series. You know, for the day. They, I can't think of the name of it, but you know, yeah, teaching. <laughs> the teacher, well, teachers put together these lessons, right? Yeah. Well, they got to. Yeah, so, uh, and we're not just talking about a temporal lesson. We're talking about from the first day you, you, the first breath you take to the last breath you take. This is about something. This whole life is about something. And what the Bible does is it helps us to understand what it's about and how to, who to traverse the course well, and so we arrive at the right destination. It's kind of like Pilgrim's Progress. So I think a lot of Christians think of the Bible reading as kind of like a Christian obligation. This is part of the tedium of being a member of the club. But I I don't see it that way. And by the way, people who understand this more than any are Christians who end up facing really difficult circumstances and trial and hardship. That's how I found out. Well, there you go. Yeah. And and, and then you realize, hey, this is a lifeline. I need Mm -hmm. advice 
I need to know how to think about these circumstances. I need to know the decisions that I need to make about these things. And I want to make the right ones, and I want to make wise ones. And where do I get that, you know? A harsh word stirs up anger, and a gentle answer turns away wrath. Oh, that's good. Where's that? It's in Proverbs. He opens wide his mouth, comes to ruin, you know? And I don't remember the second half, but it's like, if you shut up, then it's going to be safer, or something like that. I mean, two simple examples of a biblical uh, teaching that can, you know, save your bacon sometime. It's yeah. practical. And the things we don't think may be practical when we read them turn out to have, very likely, practical, legitimate, useful, helpful application somewhere down the line. We want to make sure we get the whole picture. We want to get the whole thing. And those are the reasons why I think everybody should be read, who's a Christian should be reading through Scripture, and maybe something of what I've said will give you um, kind of a leg up in a conversation uh, with, yeah. with your wife, all right? Yeah, I think so. Oh, thank you very much. Okay, Tim, I'm just out of time here now. I'm hitting the top of the hour, so or at least my hour, at least. And But I really appreciate your... Uh, I really appreciate your call, and uh, and I hope you have a great conversation with your wife about this. This stuff's important. Thanks so much. Great cocoa for Stand to Reason, friends. Give them heaven, all right? Bye-bye now. <laughs> 